The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you that we can stand and sit and talk to you. That you have made a way open for us to come, speak, lay our requests at your feet. What a good God you are to provide for, to hear, and to answer prayer. We sang so many songs just now about your goodness and about rejoicing in who you are and in what you've done. And I pray, Lord, that it is so easy to sing those songs and say those words and, and really not even to think about them. But I pray now that as we consider this passage, you would cause to rise in us a, an awareness. So many of those things that we sang, Lord, that We miss the depth of them. They are glorious. This truth in this passage is glorious. What we're called to here in your word is wonderful. So would you cause us to see it? To believe it? To experience it? To be different because of it? A simple passage very familiar to many of us. Cause it, Father, to fall on us freshly this morning. Cause it to fall on me and on my brothers and sisters here. Those here, Lord, if there are some in the room who don't know you, would you, would you speak to them and call them through the, the wonderful truth of this passage? Call them to believe. Build your church, please, Father. And towards that end, I ask you to, to now deal with us where we are right now. There's, there are distractions running through our minds and our hearts. If there's sin that we need to face and deal with even now, would you, in this moment now, would you, would you speak to us? Would you calm our hearts? Would you draw out sin and, and repentance from it and, and, and leave us before you attentive Open, and by your Spirit, then speak your word and grow us. Thank you, Father, for being good. Speak and build your church. Encourage your people and honor your Son. Thank you. You're good. We turn to you now in, in praise and with open ears. We ask you to speak by the Spirit for Christ's honor and for our good. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 4 where we're considering Paul's concluding comments. Last week in verses 1 to 3, he restated for us two of his primary concerns in writing this letter. You recall he mentioned two broad things last week. He wants the church to stand firm to hold on to and to keep holding on to Christ and to hold on to the faith and not drift away under temptation or attack. And he taught that, commanded it from love. The, the urging was laced with love, which is both a lesson to us about something we should model as we speak to the church and speak to loved ones and call them to, to hold on to Christ. We should mod, it's modeled for us, we should copy that, but also we should see in it a reminder of God's love for the church, because that's where Paul got his love for the church. He's following after Christ, who loves the church, and we're following after Paul, and we should see in that, in that chain, this is a command that comes from God because of God's love for us, and knowing what's good for us, he calls us to hold fast to him. That was the first command, and the first concern, and then the second one was that we are to be of one mind. He comes at that by illustrating, by, by discussing two particular women who are at odds with one another for some reason or other. Calls them not to, to come to the same conclusion about something, but, <clears throat> pardon me, 
but to be of one mind. That is to be of one Christ-centered mind, to have a preference above their preferences, to prefer Christ first above whatever it is they prefer individually. Paul's second concern for the church then was that we would be one single-minded people united around Christ and the gospel. And that's how we can deal with disagreements. That was last week. This week he moves to some more general, more, more broadly speaking, some concerns concluding comments of a generic sense. Chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, as I prayed, is a very familiar passage to, to many of us. This is one of the first passages I memorized when I became a Christian, so I've known it for decades. Probably a lot of us have. So, at the beginning, <clears throat> I, I, I guess I plead with you, listen to this passage again. Because it is marvelous. What is in this passage, presented in just a a few brief commands, what's in this passage is the best life imaginable. Not the best life, morally speaking, but but the best in, in the sense of the best experience of living. The most wonderful, desirable experience of living that you can imagine. The Christian life. And it's not the best life because it's the Christian life. It's the Christian life because this is what's good for us, according to how God made us, according to what we long for and need. God commands that and provides for it, the best life possible. And because God is good, that's what Christianity is. And so I want to also say, this passage should should speak to you maybe in a slightly different way. From time to time, I, I have conversation with people who, in a genuine way, are asking some question about, like, why should I believe this? This Christianity. Why should I believe it either for the first time, or why should I keep believing it? Some people ask that for a variety of reasons, but, but I'm talking about the person who genuinely asks that an adult or a teenager perhaps. And the first and most important answer is because it's true. The tomb was empty. Jesus was and is who he said he was. That's the first and most important answer. But the second answer is look at this. You can see it encapsulated in this passage. Look at this life. This truth is what you long for, what the whole world is chasing after and can't find anywhere else. We're going to talk about things like like joy and graciousness and demeanor and peace, not anxiety. Everybody wants that, and God commands it and provides for it, and the whole world is looking for it and can't find it anywhere. Now, carefully, I don't mean that there aren't any non-Christians who are joyful, or there aren't any non-Christians who are happy and peaceful, Obviously, that's true. What I do mean to say, though, is that to get there apart from Christ, you've got to miss large chunks of reality. Either not know them, overlook them, deny them. This is the truth that is what we want. Deeply want. I don't mean want surface level. I mean what your heart longs after. God commands it wonderfully that he commands what your heart chases after. That is awesome. You need to consider that as you hear commands from God and not to be crushed by commands you find. Here's a command that I'm falling short in. Ugh. No, see it as here's a command that God enables me to, while falling short, and rise to which I really want to. Glory. Glory. This is, in these verses, what one writer described using an Old Testament word. This is the life of shalom. Using an Old Testament word. This is the life of of wonderful, harmonious, joyful, beautiful, 
union and peace and wholeness from God and the gospel to all who believe. That is awesome. So, I summarize this passage in a sentence. Here's here's where we're going this morning. We are called, you hear in that that the, the idea of command, we are called to live a life of rejoicing rest in the Lord. We are called to live a life of rejoicing rest in the Lord. So we're going to work towards in three observations from verses 4 to 7. First, let me read them. This is Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Word of the Lord. I'm going to make three observations. Here's the first one. We are called to rejoice always. Really. We are called to rejoice always. Really. Verse 4, not difficult where this comes from. Verse 4, the command is to rejoice. It's repeated twice, and it's reinforced with an always. Rejoice always. And I'll say it again, because I really mean it. Seriously, rejoice. Really. That's what he means. Paul often closes his letters with statements or commandments about rejoicing, but it is particularly fitting for this letter, this letter of the Philippians, because joy and rejoicing and the command to rejoice has been all over this letter. From the very beginning, he he modeled it for us in chapter 1, verse 4, where he talks about how he prays for them in joy. And then later in the chapter, in verse 18, talks about how he is in prison and twice talks about rejoicing while in prison. And then later in chapter 1, still further, he talks about how joy for the Philippians is part and parcel of his ministry. He is going to stay alive, he knows, for their progress and joy in the faith. He models joy. He expresses joy and he commands it in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, in chapter 3, verse 1, and here in 4.4. All over Philippians is joy, modeled and stated and commanded repeatedly. Philippians is about joy. Even while, importantly, this letter is also full of hardship. That's also everywhere here. The very first connection that Paul, Joy, and the Philippian church had was what we see recorded in the book of Acts when he plants the church. And while beaten and imprisoned, he and Silas are singing for joy, praying and singing for joy in prison at night, not knowing what the next day holds, with their life hanging in the balance in question. Who knows? They rejoice. That's the very first touch point. And then he writes the letter from another prison cell, remember, awaiting verdict from Caesar. Rejoicing, rejoicing. Paul knows hardship while talking about joy. And he knows the Philippians know hardship. They know, he knows, they know the sufferings of the ordinary everyday life, annoyances and struggles and pain and hardship that is all common to man. Same kind of stuff we all face. And he also knows that they share in his gospel-related sufferings because they will not bow the knee to Lord Caesar, but proclaim the Lord Jesus. So Paul knows sufferings, and he knows the Philippians know suffering and hardship, ordinary life and gospel ministry-related. And says, yes, surely. I get it, I know, and I really mean it. 
God calls you to rejoice always. While in prison, while the wounds from the beating are still fresh, and while your future, your very life is uncertain, rejoice. And rejoice when the future is quite certain and it is very clear that people oppose you and dislike you are against you, when it is very clear that your weakness is real and worsening, when your health and your business fails, and when the fig tree does not blossom, and there is no fruit on the vine, though the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, even then, where's that from? Habakkuk. That's the pinnacle of the book of Habakkuk at the very end. So pause right there and put your life right on the next line. Whatever it is. And I mean whatever it is. Paul's reality and the Philippians' reality, and I'm just quoting Habakkuk, his reality, put your reality right there next to it. And whatever it is, whatever, Whatever it is, it is not worse than what they faced. It isn't. All that we face falls beneath the always in our verse and the always or the the even then in Habakkuk's statement. Even then. Habakkuk says, and Paul says, even in that situation, always right there, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's to mount up on the high places. This is all over the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, prophet and apostle, superhuman Christian, ordinary Philippian, and you. Really, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. That's the whole key. That's the whole key in the Lord. Or Habakkuk says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation You can rejoice always in every circumstance, in every situation, amidst the utter desolation and deprivation and starvation and imminent death that Habakkuk is facing in prison and in the ordinary hardships of the fallen world. And let's be honest. The ordinary hardships of the fallen world is a very broad term that sometimes catches annoyances like traffic and sometimes catches atrocities like rape. Those are way, way, way different. And they both fit under always. So I, I understand that I, I'm treating quickly and, and perhaps lightly some things that are light and some things that are extremely heavy. And what I'm trying to, to press here is that the command is wide and total. And you, Christian, please do not hear... In the command, a, a crush, how, how, how tragically ironic that would be that a command to rejoice would be crushing. But don't hear in it a, a crush, a, a crushing blow from God that says, you loser, you don't rejoice, and I told you to rejoice. You know, how, how ironic that would be. You're supposed to hear in the command to rejoice, I really mean in everything Rejoice. So where you are too is not set aside. God doesn't mean that I'm supposed to rejoice here. This would have to change before the command to rejoice applied. No. 
God understands whatever it is, whatever you put on that line for your life, God understands that and has included it beneath all of the examples and all the commands of the Scripture. Underneath the always, underneath the modeling of Paul and the prophets. Because the rejoicing, the, the joy, the, the, the attitude that he's commanding is not drawn from the circumstances. It's from the Lord who is always present and unchanging. That is the key placed in your hand, always there, to unlock the dungeon of despair, to let you out of fear and sorrow and complaining and every other sort of despondency that the things of life bring along with them, always in your hand, Christian, is a key that says J-E-S-U-S on it. That is awesome. Because when Habakkuk looks at the field that is barren and the stall that is empty and sees starvation and death, he knows there ain't going to be any food. Agrarian societies don't go to the grocery store. We're going to be hungry for a year, which means we're going to die. And yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The key does not say F-O-O-D on it. It says J-E-S-U-S, the Lord. That is such good news. Because he commands that which is always possible for you, Christian, and which he has provided, which he has made possible for you. The circumstances do not need to change. And frankly, most of the time they won't. They don't need to change. So when they don't, the command still applies and the command is still for you and still possible for you. Gloriously, he commands and provides for rejoicing. And that's such a good thing because that's the best life you can imagine. It's what you want. We all are chasing hard after joy. Every day you get up wanting to rejoice, wanting to, sometimes you call it, just be happy, have a little bit of freedom or release. Whatever word you put on it, you want joy. And God says, I want joy for you too. I'm going to command it and I'm going to provide for it. I'm going to give you the Lord who will never leave you nor forsake you and can always be turned to and hoped in and rejoiced in always. Let me say that again. Always. Bless the Lord for that. That reality, that it is rejoice in the Lord, is what makes it possible that we can hear this command, respond to it, and not make a mockery out of all the hardship in life. Because it's not about the hardship of life. It is rejoicing in the midst of the hardship of life, which is a wonderful thing. You can always turn to Him and rejoice in Him. Always. So... When you're not rejoicing, you should ask yourself a question. You stop and ask yourself, why not? So what Paul is telling us, again, gloriously, is that while there are certain physical reasons like a sickness or fatigue that can affect our emotions, that can be, God can command this because most of the time, and by that I mean the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, most of the time, lack of joy is a spiritual problem. It's a problem of unbelief. And I, I don't mean formal unbelief. You as a Christian have, have decided, I don't believe in the Lord anymore. I've set aside Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a lack of belief. It is unbelief in this sense. A lack of standing in the truth. Of holding firm, if you think of last week. Of holding firm to what God is for you in Jesus. Now and forever. 
You have not discarded that or rejected it. You're just not pulling it front and center and grabbing hold of it. Believing. It's good to note that because there's your solution. Pull this front and center and say, but this is true and this I believe. This is who he is. This is what he has provided for me. This is what he provides for me now and what he is doing and will bring. That is marvelous. And if you find yourself saying that, I bring it forward and I look at it and I say, eh, you know, that's, that's good, I guess, but it doesn't really produce joy. Then let me suggest to you that you pick up the law of God and read it. And consider the right and appropriate end for people who say, eh, God's okay, but that doesn't really float my boat that much. That's good, I suppose, but something else is of greater concern to me. Read the law of God and find the right and appropriate end for those who do not have the Lord first and foremost, who do not love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the right and appropriate end, says the Lord? Condemnation. You pull this front and center and you say, eh. What I suggest is that you look at that again and see in the, eh, see, oh my word, that attitude that I did not concoct just came out of me is worthy of the wrath of God forever. And the gospel is true. So even in my, eh, I do not stand condemned. Christian, sometimes, and I don't know where you are, so I can't say this is used to the, but sometimes we are not particularly moved by the in the Lord part because we don't value enough all that that means. And one of the ways to grow, that God will grow in us valuing of that is to loop back into it again and say, and my lack of valuing it itself is worthy of condemnation and is forgiven. I can't, in other words, I can't get ahead of the grace of God. I can't get away from it. The grace of God covers me. Sometimes, if that's you, sometimes God will use such reflection to cause you again to treasure His goodness to you. You didn't realize how rebellious you were, and so you didn't realize how gracious he was. So much given by God to us now. God at work in us as we walk through life and promised from God to us in the future. So much Hold that to the front and to set your mind on it and, and really even to pray with it. Lord, I believe this, but help my unbelief. There is so much there from Him. In the Lord, you are an object of great, amazing grace. Rejoice always in that. Let me say it again because it's really, really, really what the Bible means. Rejoice. This is the best of all possible lives, a life of constant joy. And God lays it in front of you and calls you to it. But that's not all. Secondly, we are called to a consistent, gracious demeanor. We are called to a consistent, gracious demeanor. The second command, 
comes in verse 5. Let your reasonableness, it says in my translation, some other translations say gentleness, let your gentleness or reasonableness be known to everyone. That's two different ways of trying to put in English a difficult concept. It's Unfortunately, both of those words are easy for us to misunderstand because of how we often use them in other contexts. He does not mean, Paul's point is not, that we are to be reasonable as in appropriate and not extreme. Proper. Reasonable. That's not what he means. Nor does he mean gentle as in having a, a careful, soft touch. Gentle. That's not what he's getting at. Neither one of those. Rather, what's in view is an attitude of, I use a bunch of words to describe it, kind of paint the whole picture here. An attitude of forbearing that is courteous, turn the other cheek sort of attitude. It is not angrily demanding of rights, not easily agitated or irritated, not easily offended, not indignant when wrong. So I pulled those together and I said, gracious demeanor. The kind of person that you hope is on the other end of the line when you call them to tell them you've done something wrong to them. You made a mistake. You hope that kind of person's the other end of the line. It, it's the kind of God you hope was on the other end of the line when you start talking to him about your sin. And he is that kind of God. This word is used to describe God. And it's supposed to be used to describe us. By everyone we come into contact with, let your gracious demeanor be seen by all. Let everyone inside the church and outside the church both see in you and experience from you in all of your dealings with them a demeanor that is humble and gracious, easily entreated, reasonable, gentle, even when wronged, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. People who are silent when falsely accused like sheep led to the slaughter. Who when reviled, do not revile in turn, but instead continue in just, entrusting themselves to him who judges justly. So many places where I can talk about us and use passages that are used to describe Jesus, and that's no coincidence. Because this is what God is like. It is what Christ was like, and it is what we are to be like. To entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And right there we find a key help. Because if we're, if we're honest, we think about that for a second. That's really difficult. All those words, when wronged, really hard. So he offers up something here. A pointer that that tells us, ah, that's where my mind needs to go if I'm going to be like that. The next standalone sentence at the end of verse 5, the Lord is near. Now, grammatically, that sentence is not connected to either what comes after it or what, what just came before it. It's just standing right there in the middle. And I think that Paul said what he said, let your gracious demeanor be known to all, thought of this, and then that made him think of what he's going to say next, our next point. He kind of drops it in the middle to, to point both ways. But here now, the Lord is near. should make us think of how 1 Peter 3 describes Jesus when he has gracious demeanor towards accusers and enemies. When reviled, he did not revile in return, but instead continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The Lord is near. In other words, as I sit here wronged, what enables me, what empowers me to turn the other cheek to the wrong one? We're assuming that I am being wronged. What enables me to turn the other cheek? What enables me to forbear, to be gracious in my demeanor to this person? What enables that is the sure and certain knowledge that coming right behind me is one who will take care of it. 
I don't need to, and I must not. I am not this other person's judge, and frankly, I might be wrong. I am not entitled to, and I must not. My job is to continue like Christ, entrusting myself to him who judges justly, and he is coming near. So we look at the attacker or the accuser, physically, verbally, whatever it is. We hear it and receive it. And in our minds then say, I am not to return that back at him, back at her, them. But instead, I am to be gracious in my demeanor. That is not to agree that they are right. It is not to just give a pass to whatever this other person or people have done. It is to reckon, in fact, that that will be surely, appropriately, rightly, and completely answered in a way much better than I would be able to. And in faith, I get out of the way. Consider the other as more important than myself. Now, again, there may be actions. I need to give some qualifiers here because this could be misunderstood. There may be some actions that a person needs to take. I'm talking about demeanor. There may be actions that a person, a wronged person needs to take. Telling someone in authority, calling the police, speaking up and, and suggesting a different path. I mean, there may be actions that a wrong person must take. But the demeanor, the demeanor is a lowly, gracious, courteous, gentle, kind, reasonable approach. It is not indignation and, and anger. And wrath, that is not us, not our place. We step out of the way and let him take care of that if need be. So are you gracious in your demeanor? Again, this is the kind of life you want. You want the certainty that justice will be done. I may think I know what the justice is, and if I'm right, that'll be done, and if I'm not, I actually want the right thing done. The certainty that it will be done, but I also want to be agreeable as far as I can be agreeable and gracious as far as I can be gracious, and God help grow me more so that I can be even more gracious and kind and gentle. Because don't we hate being at odds with people? Like, dial this down from the worst possible examples. Dial it down to something a little lower and think, just think through your life. How many times do you get royally hacked off at the person, five people up in line, who cannot figure out where she left her credit card? Find it before you get in line, for crying out loud. You know you're going to buy something when you get to the register. Where, just find your credit card, for crying out loud. You're making all of us wait. I was in line yesterday. <laughs> I was not fifth. I was 25th. I, I'm serious. The, the line went out, down, and some guy behind me said, well, thank goodness we're back by a display that's playing music. Because <laughs> it's going to get worse if we ever move up and we're just standing here. I don't know what was going on up there. In those situations, there are... Very serious situations, but those are percentage-wise in the minority. Most of the time, we don't face anything like catastrophe. We face annoyance and inconvenience. Somebody doing something to us, half the time they don't even mean to do it. And our response 
is indignation and a how dare you and why don't you get your act together. You don't, want, you don't actually want to live like that. You don't even want to feel like that. You would rather feel, okay, I guess this is what the Sovereign Lord has determined the next 20 minutes is supposed to be in my life. I'm supposed to stand here in line next to these people. Maybe I should ask this guy a question. He's talkative. You, you want that kind of rest and that kind of freedom from anxiety, which is a little prelude to where we're going in the next point. But so often we respond just like the world does. When, when attacked, when offended, when something's done to us, whether it be great and serious or, or minor and inconvenient, we respond just like everybody else does. And sometimes, I can't say what, what percentage, of who knows, but sometimes I think the world's opposition to Christianity is because Christians are so oppositional. Did Jesus set the Pharisees straight? Yes. And pretty close to only the Pharisees. You read through the people that he encounters, your ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday sinners, he was tremendously accommodating to. And even many times, even particularly at the end, those Pharisees, as they opposed him and hurled insults at him and killed him, he was silent in front of them. The model that we have before us and how to deal with the world is not the Christ on a white horse with a sword. It is the Christ carrying the cross. Leave the sword to him. And think about this in your marriages, those who are married. My goodness, don't you want this life? And don't you want a spouse? You want to be a spouse and you want a spouse like this. Who has a gracious demeanor when you wrong him or her. And you want to be one who returns back good when you receive some, some comment or some, some behavior from a spouse that kind of sets you off. You, would, you want to be the kind of person that responds graciously and gently, takes the burden on yourself and says, if there's something that needs to be sorted out here, God, you work it. I will turn the other cheek. That makes for good marriages. That makes for good families. That makes for good churches. That makes for a remarkable world. That makes for a great road for the gospel to run along. Let your gracious demeanor be known to all. And thirdly, we are called away from anxiety to peace. We are called away from anxiety to peace. Verse 6, the third command and verses 6 and 7, in a familiar paragraph, these are the extremely familiar verses. But sometimes it's possible that we might have thought of these verses with slightly a wrong angle on them, focusing on the prayer piece. They're not actually about prayer. The, the command, the lead command is, is the driver in the verse. Do not be anxious. That's, that's what the verses are really about. And prayer is a, a way that we keep the command of not being anxious. So he's opposed, he's opposite, wants us to stand away from anxiety. And by praying, we end up in verse 7, in peace. So the third observation, again put simply, is never anxious, but always at peace. Put it that way. Again, it's an absolute statement. Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety does not have any place among us. We are to be a people who are always rejoicing, 
who are gracious towards everyone and who are anxious about nothing. Got a lot of absolutes here. It's the best life in total, the best of all possible lives that he calls us to. Free from anxiety. And here's how you defeat it. You take everything to God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, we take it to God and leave it with him. As the psalmist says, but it's, it's all over the Bible, but one particular place that, that we might be familiar with that I refer to a lot, Psalm 34. You think of verses 15 through 20, Psalm 34, it's full of this kind of language about taking needs and taking anxiety-producing situations to God. Verses 15 through 20 say things like, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ear towards their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and delivers them. The Lord is near. Makes you think of what Paul wrote at the end of verse 5. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those of His people who are hard-pressed and who are opposed and afflicted and therefore would be inclined towards fear and anxiety, crushed, afflicted, broken-hearted sort of people, He says, don't fear, the Lord is near. He hears and delivers the righteous who cry to Him for help. Too bad he doesn't hear me. Too bad I'm not righteous and he doesn't hear me. That kind of thinking sometimes creeps into our heads. When it looks like God's not hearing. When we look out and, and it seems like he's not paying attention or at least not paying attention to me, and that might be Perhaps because I'm not the righteous. Psalm 34 repeatedly talks about his eyes are toward the righteous. When the righteous cry for help, he hears them. You ever thought like that? God's not hearing me, and maybe that's because I'm not righteous. I've in some way sinned, in some way messed this up, in some way put myself beyond where he's willing to go. So I'm getting what I deserve. It says, the Lord hears and delivers the righteous. And the good news is, Christian, that is you. First, originally it was and only is Christ. The only righteous one, the only one the Lord hears is near to and delivers when he cries out. And Psalm 34 reminds us of that. I stopped at verse 19, but verse 20 talks about how none of his bones are broken, fulfilled by Christ on the cross. It reminds us then that the righteous one in Psalm 34, initially the righteous one, is the Messiah. The one the Lord hears, Jesus. And then all who are in Jesus, who are in Christ by faith, we too, and this is the glory of the gospel, you too, if you've trusted Christ to be your substitute for sin, trusted his death on the cross to pay for your sin, to remove wickedness off of you, then what has been placed onto you is His righteousness. He has dressed you in His righteousness. Or put another way, He's righteous and He's included you in Him. So, the truth is, He is near to you and He does hear you, Christian. Whenever you cry out to him with whatever it is that is at hand that produces anxiety and fear, he is near and he hears even while you sin. Indeed, yet God knows the gospel better than you do and God believes the gospel better than you do. God values the death of his son more than you do. 
He sees you as clean, more thoroughly than you do. And He hears you. He hears, and He hears you. And so the Bible says, if you're a Christian, God, that is, the omnipotent, almighty one, God, the omniscient judge, the complete and full giver of grace to his people, that God, your Christian, hears you and promises you, Christian, to hear and to deliver you. Put that down on the paper right in front of you in the midst of your anxiety. That God sees me as righteous because of Christ and therefore hears me and has all power and all knowledge and all gracious inclination to actually be the real lover of my soul and to honest to goodness deliver me from this that is eating my lunch right now and should not. Do not be anxious about that, or frankly, anything. But that is whatever it is. Well, yeah, of course. And He is who He is. And here's you and promises, promises to be forever near and always certainly delivering. He is your God of glorious grace, the lover of your soul, honest. So talk to Him. Lay in front of Him with prayer and supplication. Two different words that essentially mean the same thing. The second with a slightly stronger emphasis on great need. Make known your requests in prayer and supplication. He invites you in to His presence, clean as you are, to ask Him for grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. So go and talk to Him and ask. He hears and He will answer. Does that not make you thankful? Which, what do you know, is the next thing Paul says. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Attitude, again, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That's how we pray. How far from anxiety is thanksgiving? And it is not because we have, have already received the answer. Most of the time, we don't know what the answer is. We don't know how he's going to deliver. His ways are not like ours. His timing is not ours. Even if we're praying about one thing in particular, laying our anxiety-producing thing in front of us, I read a poem, an anonymous poem, in a book on prayer, uh, the book's written by D.A. Carson, but the poem isn't. And I'm not going to quote the whole poem. I don't remember it. But the irony of every stanza is he asked for one thing and God did something else. He asked for one thing and God did something else. Through every stanza, and it concludes by saying he received nothing he asked for and everything he longed for. God heard him and delivered Though in every moment he might have been inclined to say, Hello, I got you. Believe me. I'm giving you what you really want. Trust me. Based on what? You're not doing what I want. Trust me, based on who I am. Do you know who I am? You know who I am, right? Trust me. With thanksgiving, with an attitude that everything that I face has come from his hand in the first place, and he will do good. Providentially, he will work even through sin and wickedness and evil. He will do good. That is a testimony of the Bible and the testimony of our lives, if we're honest. He has done good to you, Christian. He has. So with thanksgiving, we lay our requests before him. Make them known. And all oh, the best life imaginable comes out of that. 
the peace of God. Who can understand it? It transcends understanding. But who can, who can understand the peace of God? How that actually works? How do you explain Stephen while people are killing him with rocks? Think of that. Responding to them with gracious demeanor and praying to God in heaven, not justice, but instead, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. A lot like Jesus as the peace of God covers him. How do you explain Paul and Silas in prison? How do you explain Jesus on the cross? The peace of God is hard to understand, but it becomes a fortress around our hearts to keep out anxiety. It guards us, guards our hearts and our minds, keeps our minds from racing and racing and racing and racing. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? How is this going to work out? God is the answer. How and what? Oh, I don't know. God is sufficient answer. God is sufficient answer. If you know the God that I'm talking about. The God who holds you in his hands is mighty and good and will deliver The peace of God covers all those men, Stephen and Paul and Silas and Jesus, and it can and is meant to cover you, to guard your heart and your mind, and to keep you in peace from anxiety in Christ. This life in Christ is the best life. It is a life of constant rejoicing. It is a life of gracious dealing with other people. And it is a life of profound Peace, like the world does not know anywhere else, but is chasing after. God has delivered that to you and commands you to walk in it. And the key throughout it all, rejoice in the Lord. The peace guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And in the middle, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. So why so downcast, O oh, your soul? Why so locked in anxiety? Why so indignant at offense? Why so despondent and despairing? Put your hope in the Lord and the God of your salvation. He calls you to live the life of shalom, to live the life of rest and rejoicing in Him. So take Him up on it and enjoy it. Let me pray. Father, would You please do a work in Your people to bless us with this life. A life of such joy and such rest that is so compelling to us and to others. Help your people to walk in that, to experience it, to live it. Thank you for providing it. You could have commanded us to any kind of life. You're God. And you commanded us to the life that is so sweet. And you provided for it. So we say thank you. And I pray you'd work in your people so that we would experience it. Glorify your name by bringing about a people like this. Glorify your name and bless us with it, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 
84121.